0: Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden.
1: So It's always an adventure, the Food and Faith Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast, and it is our joy and pleasure um, to have um, someone um, from my home church, the United Church of Christ, a part of us today and a very special person at that. Um, we welcome the Reverend Brooks Burnt, um, who is the United Church of Christ Environmental Justice Minister. Um, and Brooks has a long and fascinating biography of doing social justice work, um, beginning as a um, as a pastor at First Congregational in Vancouver, Washington, which I just had the opportunity to be there a couple years ago. It is a gorgeous part of the country. Um, And while he was there, um, became active in a variety of environmental campaigns and other social justice campaigns. Um, And so one might describe Brooks as a movement builder, um, and he has done that on congregational levels for many years and is now doing that on a denominational level. Um, He also has a book out um, called Sounding the Trumpet, How Churches Can Answer God's Call to Justice, and as I understand it, you're writing a second book right now um, entitled, um, or tentatively entitled, Dear Parents, Grandparents, and Anyone Who Has a Heart for Children, It's Time for Climate Action, and so we're really excited to have a conversation around environmental and food justice, and so, Brooks, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Great. I'm delighted to be on here, excited by uh, what you've been doing on this podcast, and thrilled to be a part of it.
0: So we like to start off by asking the question of what is your geography, um, and I'm interested personally that you are off of a Washington connection. I grew up in Northwest Washington, so when I when I heard that, immediately um, had a connection there. But we'd love to know both what's your geography um, in where you grew up and in your childhood, but also what is the land that you are currently currently living in and um, the environment that that has formed you and is informing you.
2: Sure, sure. You know, I'll probably expand on that question a little bit in the sense that I I love history, and I love to not just say what's my present geography, but to kind of think of it from almost from like a family tree type of perspective. And so, um, because to me, that says a lot about, uh, you know, how I've come to be where I am in terms of, you know, food issues, agricultural issues, and so forth. Uh, So, you know, when I think of kind of the geographical landscape of where things began, uh, for me and, and the family from which I come from, I go back to, um, my, my grandfather and grandmother, uh, and both, on both sides of family, they were from rural Michigan. And, uh, my father's side in particular, uh, he grew up on a farm. And so, uh, that, um, and we wouldn't, you know, I up going, going there in the summer and, picking fruits in the summer and that kind of thing. Um, And and so my father, um, he, from the age of six onward, he would basically work all day on the farm. And uh, they had 30 acres. Uh, They uh, started with asparagus, so black caps, black raspberries, sour cherries, strawberries, peaches, apples, pears, grapes. And then that was in addition to to chickens and uh, for a while cows and the story there is that they had cows until my father almost died because uh, the cows got diseased and my father got sick at the age of uh, around five and almost died and so they uh they ended up having to, to put down the cows and um so so it's one of those stories i grew up hearing um uh, but um but they they had a rough go of it uh, and eventually uh, my grandfather had to uh, both run the farm and work in the factory at the same time. So he would work in the factory from uh, 3 in the, the late shift from 3 in the afternoon till 12 at midnight. And then he would work on the farm in the morning until he went to work in the factory. And so um, my father, it kind of as a result of that, that childhood, uh, when he grew up, he, he didn't want anything to do with the farm. <laughs> he wanted to at least the farm labor aspect of things, but uh, he, he did still like being near the farm. And so uh, we, we grew up uh, with a, a cornfield in our backyard, but, but not working on a farm. And so, um, and I and I kind of feel like in in a transition, you know, my, my father in some ways wanted to remove himself from that farm world, in some ways not. And then, and then me as the next generation, Uh, you know, it really wasn't, you know, largely, I think, not part of my consciousness, uh, you know, in in the, the, you know, as it was for my father and grandfather's generation, I just did did not have that kind of farm oriented kind of connection to the land or anything uh, like that. Um, And so, um, you know, my own thinking about food and agricultural issues wouldn't really you know, take place until much later in life. Um, there, there were some you know bits and pieces here and there. I remember kind of my first activist outing as a college student uh, was in support of a United Farm Workers campaign. I, I stood outside the the uh, cafeteria for our college and uh, petitioned people for uh, a boycott that the United Farm Workers were doing at the time, and and so. Uh, you know, I wish I could tell you uh, what the, the uh, issues were we were grappling with at the time. You know, in hindsight, I know uh, that the United Farm Workers dealt a lot with everything from uh, union contracts to pesticides but, uh, and working conditions. And so, but what I kind of really remember about that was it being an empowering experience. I I'd never really done in anything uh, that kind of uh, advocacy activist oriented before. And so, and I was also, you know, a fairly shy, introverted person, and and so for me to to kind of stand in front of the, you know, the college cafeteria and stop everyone who came in, uh, I would because I would I wasn't just sit at a table, I would <laughs> I'd be I'd stop right in front of me and uh, get them to, to stop and ask them if they would do the petition. That for me that was like a huge thing, uh, and to realize I could do it and and not you know, feel like I I need to hide under the table. Um, you know, so for me, that, that's kind of one of the early entrances I had into dealing with, uh, food and agricultural issues. But then I I would say it really wasn't more until later in life as a pastor that I I began grappling with some of the issues. Um, and then now definitely in my current job, uh, you know, I, I think about food and agricultural issues un, under the broader uh, umbrella of environmental justice issues, and so um, you know, I think that that for me, part of that also in, in growing up is while I might not have uh, you know uh, connected to the kind of the the farm issues that the way my father and, and grandfather's uh, generation did, but but uh, one thing that I did get from my father was he's very much immersed into uh, liberation theology, uh, supporting the United Farm Workers and, and things like that. And and I think that was something that was more transmitted to me, you know, uh, as opposed to uh, things related to the farm world in which he grew up in. Um, And so that, um, you know, has carried over to me and I think it's kind of really the the beating heart of justice that uh, is what, continues to get me involved in issues, whether it's food, agriculture, or or beyond into other environmental issues. And so, as uh, was mentioned kind of in the introduction, um, I spent my eight years, uh, my initial first eight years as a pastor were in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that was a a time where it kind of reawakened my love of of kind of the great outdoors because it's a great place to go hiking. Um, and so every Saturday, uh, Saturday morning, um, my wife and I would go for a hike down the Columbia river gorge. And for me, the Columbia river area kind of became my sacred, uh, land and area.
1: Amen to that.
2: (laughs) And so that, uh, you know, um, was definitely formative. Also, I would say, you know, to kind of my development and my, Uh, environmental worldview. I'd say, you know, in terms of justice issues, uh, you know, as a seminarian, I worked a lot on uh, prison issues and I worked a lot of labor issues, but it wasn't until I became a pastor that I really became interested in environmental issues. Um, And and my first uh, involvement was really in a campaign to transition the state of Washington away from its only coal plant. Uh, ultimately a successful coal plant. We're uh, a successful campaign. Uh, there's always kind of a battle between Oregon and Washington to see which state would be the first coal-free state in the nation. And um, and so uh, I think Oregon uh, beat us out on that one. But um, but yeah, it was, um, that, that really kind of uh, cut my teeth and got me involved in, in environmental issues. Um, later, there was a plan to put the, the largest uh, proposed an oil terminal in the country in the city where I was a pastor. And uh, and that also, uh, that was a multi-year campaign uh, that didn't come to a conclusion until after a couple of years after I left, uh, when the, the governor put an end in, into that oil terminal. So um, that, that, never, that never, never happened. It was just always a proposal, and they defeated it. So um, really uh, something I feel fortunate to be a part of, you know, two successful environmental campaigns early on. So that, that's a, bit, a little bit about my background, and, and now I find myself here in, in Cleveland. And so uh, working here in downtown Cleveland, which has its own uh, environmental justice issues, uh, we just today decided to endorse a ballot initiative to uh, address uh, lead issues in Cleveland. Cleveland has some of the worst lead poisoning rates in the country for children. Uh, it's not like Flint where it's not a water issue. It's a, uh, a dilapidated housing, uh, you know, uh, due to uh, terrible landlords kind of issue. Um, and so so that's um, that's that's what we're dealing with uh, here in Cleveland. Um, and we've also been a part of success, successful, another successful campaign here in Cleveland, uh, which is to get the city to commit to 100% renewable energy by the year. Uh, 2050. Yeah. So that's a little bit about, uh, about my uh, geography in relation to my work.
1: Very good. You know, and, uh, and I want to go back to something you said that um talking about your history as geography, which I think is a, a fascinating take. Um, you said that um, your family, I believe it was your grandfather that was interested in being near the farm, but not on it. But at the same time, um, I hear a lot of this um, in both food and agricultural movements, and in environmental movements. That there are a lot of people who want to be around it, but don't necessarily want to be a part of it, or don't want to make the investment um, that it—personal, monetary, or otherwise—to be a part. To be a part of those kinds of things. And so I'm wondering, um, just as a pastor, what do you think is going on there? Like in the lives of people that they like being able to go outside and see trees. Um, but sometimes getting involved in a climate justice movement is a step too far, or they want to, they want farms around and they want to live in a rural area. Um, they want to be where food is being produced, but, but to actually, um, to only buy local or to buy seasonal or those kind of things is also a step too far for some folks. I I just heard a residence there, and I wonder what what you think about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I can see it's kind of like a, a metaphor. I mean, I think what you're saying also remind me of something. I think I recently read about the the comedian Sarah Silverman. Like, she wanted to have her own farm, right? And she mm-hmm. well, and then she's like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah,
1: everybody wants to do it. So you have to do it.
2: <laughs> and uh, you know, and and so I think. Uh, for me, I can't say I've ever really had the, the romance for it. You know, like, like I just, yeah. I, just uh, I just knew, you know, early on, it's not for me, you know, I'm sure taking care of the plants on my windowsill, but, but I see, uh, you know, but I, but I think, you know, in terms of kind of like, yeah, the, what is it that gets people to move, you know, in terms of acting on commitment? Um, and that's an interesting issue, you know, cause to what degree is it cultural, you know, in a way like, well, we, we have people visit this, you know, our counterparts from Germany will come and visit us and they'll quickly walk around our building and they'll be like, man, you guys are environmentally backwards, right? Like, I mean, you know, it's just like little cultural things, you know, like, you know, you know, like the, that are almost embarrassing to mention, you know, like, whether it's like the kind of cups we use or, or, things like that, or, or the temperature that we keep our rooms at, you know, there'd be like look, business in the summer, like it's freezing in here, you know, like this is just bad for the environment to have your <laughs> air conditioner this high And like, and uh, you know, so like there's, there's those things where I'm sometimes where, okay, there's some cultural differences that I don't want, I don't know, you know, you know, on that level. Um, but I, you know, part of me also is always, and one could also say it's individual lifestyle too uh, but but i i I feel like part of my job in a way is to also ask the bigger question of of how we're kind of set up for these things by kind of the larger policies and systems in which we operate. I don't know you know in terms of like things like food choices, yeah, we can say, ah, uh, you know. A lot of people their their the depth of their commitment tends to wane or or they, they can't they can't make a permanent shift or, or things like that. But I also feel like we're in a a situation where we're we're kind of uh, things are set up against us to, to not make be successful in making those transitions in our personal life, I guess. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well let I me mean, think that that translation I think as leadership as leaders, that's something I feel like we're always looking at like, how do we help people to move from one place in their th- thoughts and actions to another? And I'm curious, I mean, I'm curious to hear more about your current job, but also what was it like moving from, you know, you talked about being in a local congregation in Vancouver, seeing some of the issues, starting to work with them there, and then moving to a denominational level. Do you feel like you're, you're further away from impacting that direct change or that you can have a broader impact. Um, how do you how do you see that thread traced in terms of helping to actually change minds and lives that, that then change community in that way?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel like, you know, I've, I've moved to kind of a, a different place in the ecosystem, right? Like one can be really extremely impactful and some days I feel like you can be most impactful kind of at the congregational level, right? And at the same time, you know, that there we're all in different positions and have different places where we can have influence. And so I, you know, I don't think about too much of a comparison, you know, like, uh, you, you know, in one place you can have a much bigger impact than another place. I think we all try to have as big as impact wherever we are. And for me, it, you know, it's kind of a matter of personal calling as to where my passion was to spend energy. And, um, you know, and when I was a, a local pastor, I had, uh, two wonderful church members, uh, Don and Alona Steinke, who were both retired and, and in their retirement uh, went after environmental issues full-time. And uh, Don was a retired, uh, uh, you know, school science teacher and, and Alona was a retired nurse. And so they had made this great combination. He could hit the science and she could hit the public health and, you know, and, and they could, uh, you know, and they were just terrific. And, and I remember as a pastor, just thinking, I wish I had the, the time to be full-time on environmental issues. <laughs> I, I I show up at meetings and I was, you know, speak at events, you know, but they were really doing it all the time. I was like, that's what I want, you know, to do is, is to really be able to, cause I saw that that's where my passion was growing. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and so to me, it, you know, uh, we can all have big impact wherever we are. And, and I think, You know, where I'm at today, I I, I like to think that my experience as a pastor helps me to, you know, be aware of the issues that are dealt with, um, you know, uh, in the congregational level, right? Because, you know, I have members of my congregation who had uh, worked for uh, the coal plant. You know, uh, I remember my congregation that had worked for uh, the railroad that was bringing that was carrying the you know uh, either the coal or the oil as the case may be, you know, and so so I had to g- grapple with those things as a pastor. You know, myself and others in the church want to be involved in in these things, and then I also had members who had a different history, and often that history would lead them. In, in ways that would be not always expected, right? We—I had one member who was very much involved in, in some of the coal plant stuff uh, from his professional life, but he was all—he was all for transitioning away from it, right. You know, so it's not always kind of completely stereotypical either. But um, you know, so but they so I those kind of issues of how do you work with a congregation on these issues. Uh, realizing the great potential realizing some of the obstacles that can be faced you know that that experience was was really meaningful to me um and so you know i i I now you know bring that with me as i i feel as a companion to congregations often as they're figuring out these issues uh looking for a dialogue partner and so forth um that that's i think that's part of how that comes into play for me today yeah.
1: You know, and I know, um, on a, being a pastor in the United church of Christ, I'm looking to the example that you set and the, and, Maybe influence isn't the right word, but sort of the the space that you occupy um, gives us some freedom, you know, it, to to feel supported and to move forward, knowing that um, that these things are being worked on and at sort of a denominational level. And so um, that interplay between you know sort of denominational and con- congregational levels um, is certainly important to our polity, and I think it's important um, as as we watch movements grow um, throughout faith communities around environmental justice, and so. With that, though, I'm wondering, just from your from your perch as a denominational leader, what is the state of ecclesial work on climate justice? Like, how are faith communities doing in this work? Are we doing enough? Are we making enough noise? Or is are, are there places where we're really blind to some work that we haven't paid attention to? I know it's growing in our popular um, conversation Uh and even our political conversation, particularly as we talk about green new deal and some other things. But I wonder, um, as you interact interacting the United church of Christ and other denominations and other faith communities, how are we doing?
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I think it all depends kind of what you're looking at and, and, and talking about. So we recently just had a, a, a survey done by a partner organization for the second year in a row where they surveyed our members, and i can i can say you know like when it comes to worldview and outlook on environmental issues our members are uh, right there i mean like they're right there where we want them to be in, in you know in 90 percent you know plus majorities on a lot of the issues related to climate change in particular what the survey focused on and that's kind of across the political spectrum too uh in terms of who was surveyed and so so I feel like our members are really there in terms of their understanding of these issues in a lot of cases. Uh, we, we can kind of statistically kind of point to that and know that. You know, we're also seeing kind of also a lot of growth into what that means on a congregational level. Uh, we know from the survey in the past few years, we've already seen an uptick in the number of uh, churches that are addressing uh, environmental issues from the pulpit. So. Um, so that's something that we know we're, we're continuing to grow in, 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 and do better in. past year, I've also seen an uptick in churches that have done our, our Green Church Program, which is we call Creation Justice Churches. Um, and, and that's really about churches uh, going through a process, if they haven't already been through the process, of trying to make uh, creation care central to their DNA as a congregation. And, and really kind of thinking about, the entire life of their their congregational uh, not not just physical plant maintenance and whether or not they're doing recycling but really every pretty much every aspect of a congregational life you can bring some kind of environmental lens and focus to uh or consciousness to and so
1: can 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 you give an example of that like what that what that looks like because um, certainly there's a lot of movement around oh we'll get solar panels or oh, we'll reduce our oil consumption like i wonder what a climate justice centered church how some of the different decisions they might make.
2: Right. Right. So one of the things we, you know, invite churches to do is to do kind of what we call a green church inventory, which is to list all of the committees and ministries that are in your church and then go through them one by one and ask, how does creation care pr- relate to what they're doing? And if you do that, you can, you can think of something about for pretty much everything. I mean, for a while I was stuck cause I, you know, in my church, we had a, prayer shawl knitting group and i was like prayer shawl knitting I, I, well <laughs> yeah that's a tricky one <laughs> yarn, right <laughs> right I mean, like you can if you go you think about it enough and so like your educational programming you know whether you're talking about children or adults all that can have you know an environmental component and often churches really get jazzed about including an environmental creation care component in their children's education right and uh when i was a church pastor you know we did a that was the theme for often for our uh, vacation Bible school, right? Then, if you look at finances, obviously, a big thing. Uh, you know, um, for our denomination, at one point, was calling for divestment from fossil fuels, right? So not only can you divest your you know uh, investment portfolio, but also you can move where you have your money in a bank, right? Um, and that's something that came about. Uh, from one of our local churches during the standing rock movement, a local church in the Seattle area. They, you know, there's uh Seattle was like as a city decided they weren't gonna do business with Wells Fargo. Well the church they said, well, wait, do we do we want to bank at Wells Fargo? Right? And then, you know, they made the decision to to move to uh, probably a local credit union or, or whatever the case was. And so and then they developed materials to help other churches move their money. Name something that you do in a church, you can probably think of some way it relates. Uh, we one of the things obviously is to always begin with theology and worship, right? And there's lots of different ways. A lot of churches now will do kind of their Earth Sunday around Earth Day. Uh, there's also the seasons of creation that the World Council of Churches endorses, uh, kind of creating its own liturgical season focused on creation and care. But if you, but also if you think about it, really every Sunday. I kind of feel like at a at a very least, there there's a rich uh, you know spirituality to be tapped into just thinking about what you're grateful for, right? I mean, like
0: yeah, absolutely,
2: we're grateful for the clean air we breathe and the clean water and like I mean, like the food we eat and you know, there every Sunday you've got something to be in Thanksgiving for related to you know the gifts of creation, right? But yeah. I kind of that, that should be there every Sunday, you know. And so, so if you kind of look at all these different facets of church life, uh, the more you think about it, you're like, oh, that really should be at the kind of the heart of our our DNA and what we're what we're doing. And of course, you know, if, uh, I think you know, every church I've been a part of, food has been a big big thing, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, church potlucks, right? And so that's uh, that's also another area where churches can can. Uh, bring their consciousness to bear So
0: are there some ways you've specifically seen the food, food ministries be transformed or informed by the, by becoming a creation care church? I mean, you had some great examples in terms of other areas and being the food and faith podcast, (laughs) particularly interested, where do you see that showing up in your, in congregation life?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of ways. I mean, for a while there was a, a real, uh, a popular trend towards kind of doing potluck meals where the food was sourced within a certain, you know, like a hundred mile radius or, or something like that. Maybe it was less than a hundred miles. I can't, but there's those kind of things. And then we also keep track of, um, how many churches in our denomination have, uh, community gardens. And so that's also another common entry point. Uh, this month we'll be launching another survey where we'll hopefully get even better, you know, statistics on, on how many of our churches have community gardens. Um, then there's churches, you know, that, that get involved with, uh, composting. Um, you know, there's and then there, there's the old, you know, classic issues of of what kind of uh, utensils you're using and so forth. Um, so it kind of comes, it can come to into play any number uh, of ways.
1: I'm curious, um, as somebody, and actually Ann and I, um, as you well know, both participated in sort of creation and food-centered churches. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're always thinking about what's the next thing or what haven't we thought about yet, um, you know? Obviously doing community gardens, um, solar panels, um, eating local, like all those things um, are not just a part of sort of creation center churches, but in a lot of ways they're finding their way into more traditional um, churches, if you will. But what aren't, we, what aren't we seeing yet that we need to start paying attention to as, as creation and food center churches?
2: My arena really has to do with the area of advocacy, right? And so that's, mm-hmm. that's where my mind always gravitates to first. So to me, when it comes to food, I, right, you know it's, it's great that we think about uh, growing our own food and uh, where our food comes from and life kind of style choices and, and having community gardens. but ultimately, to deal with kind of the size of the issues that we deal with today. Like climate change, um, knowing that about you know by some estimates a third of our greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to the our agricultural system. That ultimately you have to address those things on a on a scale in a very large scaled up way, and in a way that touches upon policy. And so, to me, that's all always where we're where we're trying to head you know, and, and is getting people to do that. Um, and right now I, I feel like, you know, the the number one way to do that now has been, been the opening created by focusing on the Green New Deal. And, and it's, you know, it's an interesting thing because when you think about the original New Deal, that grew out of uh, really desperate agricultural circumstances with yeah. the Dust Bowl and everything, right? And, and now we're really in a situation that's probably even, uh, graver in a sense when thankfully the proposal that's been put forward does you know, raise this issue of how are we going to transform our, our agricultural system in in a way that also is going to, uh, be, be good for our economy and for jobs. And so to me, that's, that's, that's the place to head, um, and, and to push the envelope is to, to move that conversation forward, uh, into a way where churches are going to become active, uh, in that, in that um, advocacy policy arena.
0: So. I appreciate that and, I, and this may may lead right into our, our last question um, which is what brings you hope and i think so often when we talk about when we really get serious about environmental work it's so much uh, the, the you know the statistics are dire it's not it's not a pretty picture it is this this really you know greater than the dust bowl desperation in place Um, but what, what keeps you coming to work every day and showing up to it and not getting lost in that despair? Um, what's, what are the things that give you hope and, uh, hope with realism, a hope that, that, that comes from, um, believing that there actually is, is a way forward in this.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I would say one, the first thing I always say in terms of just my daily work uh, is what's most important to me is being rooted in a clear sense of my calling, which means I'm always thinking about how what I'm doing is rooted in love. And for me, that has a, really a lot to do with love of my uh, two daughters, right? Um, I think a, a lot about, you know, the world they're currently in the process of inheriting, and wanting that world to be as safe and as hospitable and as uh, thriving a place as it can be. And so, you know, that, that to me is kind of my fundamental rooting in this work and what, what drives me forward, I think, on a daily basis. I'd say, you know, in terms of, of hope, um, I'd say I'm definitely someone who kind of lives and, and feeds off of stories. And I, and I feel really fortunate in that regard, because I have a job that kind of uh, lives history, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I don't expect everybody in those, but like we, one of the, the great things about my job is it grew directly out of the birth of the environmental justice movement. right? And for like the first 20 years, this position existed or so, it was held by the Person who wrote the toxic waste and race report Charles Lee and you know so you know he came out of this all of that built off of a uh, the watershed event and the origins of of the environmental justice movement which was a six-week civil disobedience campaign uh, in a rural community called Warren County in North Carolina uh, back in 1982 and so the the story there for for those that aren't You know, familiar with it is there was a company that had been hired to transport toxic waste uh, laced with PCBs, a carcinogenic substance, uh, out of the state of North Carolina. And they decided uh, that to save a little money, they wouldn't take it out of the state of North Carolina. They'd just dump it on the roadside illegally. And so these, like, Masses amounts of toxic substances were all legally dumped on the roadside, and um, and then p- people in the community began to to see uh, something that really frightened them. It, it looked like men dressed in spacesuits uh, were out there. Now we know that you know, those people dressed in hazmat suits, right? We're out there, uh, you know, discovering what had been dumped there illegally. So people ended up going to prison for, over that, but. Um, that, uh, you know, they had to figure out where to, they, you know, they clean that all up and where to dump it. Well, at the state of North Carolina, the great wisdom decided they would dump it in the last place you want to put it like environmentally, which is a community with a high water table level, right? <laughs> you don't want to put a toxic substance anywhere near the place we got a high water, but they did. And that was, that was Warren County, which happened to be the county in North Carolina with the highest percentage of black people and uh, one of the the, the top uh, poverty rates in North Carolina. People in the community started to meet uh, first in the county courthouse, uh, and then they moved to Colley Springs Baptist Church for their meetings. Uh, One of the early leaders in that was a woman named Dolly Burwell, uh, who I've had the good fortune of of interviewing. And and so she was a lay member of a UCC church. She was also uh, on the board for the uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, uh, organization, the so- Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, and, and so she uh, was there as kind of one of the early organizers. She realized people were, were so fired up and so upset. That they didn't know what to do with themselves. And so in her wisdom, she then realized she needed to bring in a veteran of the Civil Rights Movement, her pastor, the Reverend Leon White. Uh, to get them organized, to figure out uh, you know, a peaceful, nonviolent way for them to direct their energies. And, and so when the first uh, dump trucks began to arrive in Warren County, they marched from Colley Spring Baptist Church and put their bodies on the line and, um, and, and, and started getting arrested. And uh, that campaign would last six weeks, over 500 people would get arrested and it would gain national attention. And so on that first day, uh, Dolly Burwell, she was getting ready to go uh, to the church and her 10 year old daughter, Kimberly, uh, insisted she didn't wanna go to school that day. She wanted to go with mom. And so she went with her mom and uh, she witnessed her mother getting arrested. Um, As as her mother was being kind of loaded, uh, she was interviewed by Dan Rather in an interview that would go around the nation. Uh, she was in tears in that interview. <laughs> what, what Dolly told me, she wasn't, Kimberly wasn't crying because uh, her mother was getting arrested. She was crying because she was afraid of the PCBs. <laughs> but, but uh, and then Kimberly would later be arrested herself as a 10 year old and then detained uh, in a local school. That would be her, her jail essentially. Um, you know, and, and on that same day, Leon White would be arrested the next day. Uh, someone named uh, Benjamin Chavis was arrested. I always thought Benjamin Chavis; uh, he later would coin the term environmental racism. He'd be the person who would spearhead the Toxic Waste and Race Report five years later. Um, I always assumed that he got arrested by putting his body on the line, but as it turns out, he he was he had he had he had spent time uh, in, in prison in North Carolina as uh, un, uh, un, unjustly as a part of the. Uh, famous case where he was uh, basically framed and unjustly imprisoned uh, while doing community organizing work as a pastor and he was going to jail to bail out the people arrested on the first day and he got uh, pulled over for uh, driving too slow
0: Oh and, gracious
2: <laughs> and then he's, and, and then the, he's like so we're gonna do And they're like we're gonna lock you up and take you to jail Right. And so, uh, so that's how he got arrested. He, he really had no desire to be going back into a North Carolina jail. So, um, but he then became really a central figure in, in the, the launch of the environmental justice movement, um, and, and and would play a kind of a pivotal pivotal role in a lot of ways. So, all that gives me history. You know, it's history that. People were getting involved with that without any real knowing that it was going to have the impact and the ripple effects that it continues to have today. And I, I you know, I've had a chance to, um, you know, hear Ben Chavez speak about that history. I've also had a chance to interview Leon White, and it's some things that uh, the Reverend Leon White said to me that are often what I think about when I think about hope too, in a way. Because to me, me, that's like, he was involved in the sacred history. And what stood out to me is he was telling me like, back then, uh, you know, we didn't always really feel like we knew what we were doing or we didn't know what to do next. Right. But he would always kind of go back to kind of the, the, you know, the roots of his faith, um, which is, you know, the Lord will make a way somehow. Right. And, you know, stepping out on faith—you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, you don't—you don't know if it's the right thing, but you step out anyways. You know, and uh, you know, someone once said, "Faith is stepping out on nothing and landing on something." Right? You, and and to me, that—that's often, I think, probably how a lot of us feel in this work. We don't, you know, we're up against—you know—these issues are are really enormous and big. Hard to, to always feel like you know what you're you're doing the right thing, but step out on, on faith. And, and, and then it's in that, that, you know, it's kind of an actualized hope right here. You know, the, the hope comes in the doing and uh, because you're going to, you're going to have those feelings of doubt, you know, that, that's all going to come with it. And, and and so, so it's those, those stories of the people that have gone before me uh, that have been the, the trailblazers that really kind of are what nourish me and keep me going because I'm always going back to those stories and I feel like I'm discovering something new in them, right? Yeah, it relates to whatever I'm doing right now. You know, it's like, oh, you know, they, they face, You know, I remember when they faced this. You know, like, and there's this this you know lesson that I should be learning from that. You know, and so, so that that's uh, a lot of what keeps me going, and I just feel really fortunate, you know, that I. I mean, I have this job where it's, I kind of have a daily reminder. But yeah, so it's like, I just feel really fortunate just to be able to walk in and every day see, you know, Ben Chavis on my wall and, and to, to know that, you know, there's people that have really uh, given a lot to this struggle and have paved the way. So that that that's just uh, for me a, a great blessing of this work. Mm.
1: Well, it's been a joy to hear you begin with history, reminding us of being aware of our own personal histories and also the history of this work, um, and landing us in a place where we are reminded that things do change, that even as we feel up against um, climate and food justice issues that are existential in nature, that there have been existential crises of one form or another that we have faced with, um, with, with courage and things have changed. And so um, your pastoral heart to, to tell those stories and then invite individuals, congregations, and indeed even a denomination to be a part of that um, means a lot. I really appreciate your witness to that. Finally, just wanted to say thanks and um, wanted to invite our listeners um, to connect with your work. And so how, how can pe- people do that? How can they follow you, read read what you're writing, read what's going on in the United Church of Christ?
2: Sure, sure. Well, there, there's uh, two things, ongoing things that I invite people to check out. Uh, one, we, we have a uh, ongoing kind of blog and newsletter called The Pollinator. It's very grassrootsy. We kind of invite ordinary people working on environmental issues to, to write up their thoughts on what they're learning, uh, often at a congregational level, like what's been the best practices in their church or uh, an ish, pass- issue that they feel particularly passionate about. So uh, you can one can go to uh, ucc.org slash the pollinator and, and check that out. Uh, Then, I'm also really fortunate that I I do a a monthly webinar with the Reverend Michael Malcolm from Alabama Interfaith Power and Light, Uh, and every month we're doing, we're inviting guests on to do uh, a webinar with them, us, Uh, we've had, you know, great people on there, uh, and we'll continue to have great people Uh, this month. We've got Nathaniel Stinnett, the founder of Environmental Voter Project uh, kind of looks at why environmentalists tend not to vote at very good rates uh, by a sizable margin. We were hmm. bad voters, uh, but he's got an organization that's figured out how to turn that around uh, and it has some real success stories in doing so. Uh, so we'll have him this month. Um, we're going to have uh, Catherine in, uh, in in May. So I think that, you know, every month we got good, good people dealing with a whole range of issues uh, from how to go solar to how to relate to immigration. And so, so that good, good stuff invite people to, to connect with us in those ways. It's called Creation Justice Webinars, and you can watch past, past recordings of webinars and, and so forth.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing your stories with our listeners. And we look forward to continuing to follow your work and be in conversation in the future. Great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.